We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. What a good way to start a Sunday. Will you guys turn to uh, Nehemiah chapter 9? Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to uh, read all of Nehemiah chapter 9. This may come as news to you, and if so, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm the first person to tell you, but the universe does not... The, 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 the universe does not exist for you. The, the world doesn't revolve around you. And if you were here last week, I know you're at least the second, I'm, I'm at least the second person to tell you that you're not the point of the Bible either. I, I had originally in my manuscript, I may be the first person to tell you this, but Pastor Ronnie uh, said this last week. So uh, you are not the point of the Bible. The Bible is not about you. People are not the point. God is the point of the Bible. The Bible tells a story of a glorious triune God who shows himself to be glorious chiefly by dumping his grace on ill-deserving creatures. That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not the story of a heart-smitten God who had stars in his eyes for us and just couldn't be happy until heaven was inhabited by us. That's not where you and I fit in this story. We are not the much-needed company to resolve the problem of celestial loneliness. The story of the Bible is about an infinitely, eternally, inscrutably blessed and happy and holy triune God who needs nothing and whose happiness spills over into creation. And then whose glory is put on maximal display when he graciously redeems that creation after it has fallen. That's us. That's where we fit in this story. We are the needy, ill-deserving recipients of God's grace whose persistent wickedness creates the backdrop for God's glory to shine more brilliantly. That's where we fit in this story. We are not the heroes of our stories. We are the complete idiots And God is the hero who keeps on saving us out of our idiocy. That's the story of the Bible. And we're going to see the story of the Bible in miniature in Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning. But before we get into the prayer of Nehemiah chapter 9, we need to orient ourselves around the context. So let's read uh, verses 1 through 5 and sort of help set the stage for us and remind us where we've been in the book of Nehemiah thus far. Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place And read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood 
Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Petahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So remember where we are in this story, in this book of Nehemiah. After being in exile for over 150 years, God has raised up Nehemiah to lead the people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem around the newly erected and newly rebuilt temple there. And it's been a difficult and taxing project. It's been fraught with challenges, both from without, opposition from without, and also difficulties of sin and faithlessness within. It's been a really hard project. And now that the physical walls are built, Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest, are reorienting the people spiritually, and they're doing so around the Scriptures. So this is reformation that's happening. They've now rebuilt the walls, and now they're reorienting themselves spiritually around the Word of God. And so they allot inordinate amounts of time reading and studying the Scriptures together. And after reading the law for the first time in their lives, many of them, Nehemiah and the priests have instructed the people to launch out into what is basically a month-long worship service. It began with the seven-day Feast of Booths that Pastor Ronnie talked about last week, and it continued now for a couple more weeks. And in today's passage, we now find ourselves on day 24 of this worship festival, and the Levites again, we read, uh, read the law for a quarter of the day, and their response is to make confession and worship the Lord their God for another quarter of the day. So they, they again, read the law. It serves like a mirror, and it reflects all of their sinfulness back to them, and then they respond to it in prayer and confession. Let me just make two quick observations about this. First, we see that true True spirit-wrought revival is always accompanied with confession of sin in response to the revelation of God's holiness through His Word. Let me say that again. True spirit-wrought revival is always accompanied with confession of sin in response to the revelation of God's holiness from His Word. This cannot but be the case. Revival, whether we're talking corporate or individual. We're talking about great moves of God where communion with God is deepened and zeal for His name is set ablaze. These kinds of things cannot coexist with sin coddling. And appreciation for God's holiness leaves no room for pet, unconfessed sin and vice versa. The Holy Spirit of God won't leave our consciences Alone, His white-hot presence burns our pet sins. The only way to be safe from His conviction while coddling your sin is to make yourself calloused and numb to God. But you can't have both. You can't have your pet unconfessed sin and also zeal for God and communion with Him. 
We'll say more about this later. So that's the first observation. True spirit-wrought revival is always accompanied with confession of sin in response to the revelation of God's holiness through His Word. But notice also, second, true confession of sin always occurs within the context of worship where the glory of God is central. This is what marks true confession of sin. If you recall, the people wanted to corporately confess their sin 24 days prior. In the beginning of chapter 8, when they read the law for the first time, they wanted to do this, and Nehemiah and the priest said, no, you're not allowed to confess your sin right now. Why wait? Why, why put off what they're doing right now for 24 days? And Pastor Ronnie reminded us that at least one of the reasons, the most basic reason, is that that day was a holy day. It was the beginning of the, the Feast of Booths. So today is not a day of mourning. It's a day of celebration. This is, this is a holy day. But that, that festival lasted seven days. So what were they doing for the other, you know, 20 Three days. <laughs> it was at least a couple of dozen days. No, 23 days. What were they doing for that time? Why wait? Why put it off not, not only for the Feast of Booths, but also for a couple more weeks? Why, why do that? And I believe that the answer is this. Nehemiah wanted the people to know that God's grace for them was not earned even by their penitent spirit. They needed to know that God would heed their confession and show mercy upon them, not because of the depth of their sorrow, but because of the depth of His mercy. The grace of God is never a wage. We could no sooner pay for it with tears than we could with money or labor. That's not what confession is. It's not, it's not this transaction where we come to God with our sadness and in exchange, He gives us His grace. No, we should feel sadness and grief over our sin and we should confess it with grief. But our hopes are not found in our ability to repent thoroughly enough. Our hopes hang entirely on God and His gracious nature. That's what Nehemiah wanted the people to get before they confessed their sins corporately. He wanted to disabuse them of the assumption that their confession merited God's mercy. Before you confess to the God of heaven, in other words, you need to spend 24 days meditating on what kind of God he is. And this is why we begin our services with the call to worship instead of a corporate confession, even though that's exactly what most of us feel like we need as soon as we walk through those doors over there. But the point of confession is not to get things off of our chest in an act of therapy. The point of confession is to entrust ourselves to this God. We need to get to know this God, who, who we are confessing to, in order for us to truly entrust ourselves over to Him. Now, I want us to read this prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 in its entirety. And as we do, I want you to notice the subjects and the pronouns of this prayer and the conjunctions that serve as like hinges that this door swings back and forth on 
like, like it's a saloon door, right? So this, is, this prayer is like a door swinging back and forth, and the conjunctions are the hinges, right? So we have, you, God, keep on doing all of these wonderful things. Nevertheless, we are terrible and keep on doing these things. But you, God, still are amazing, but we are terrible. So that's, that's what's happening in this prayer. I want you to think about it like that. Pay attention to the pronouns and the conjunctions. Verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, And you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew how they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in the land, to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Verse 16, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. 
And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous and all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now with the rest of our time together, I want to highlight two marks of this prayer, and then we'll conclude with three pastoral charges. Mark number one, this is something I want us to exemplify in our prayer life. This prayer is marked by a sober understanding of a massive God. Sober understanding of a massive God. Look at verse six. You are the Lord, you alone you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. And the host of heaven worships you. 
This is the God to whom we pray. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. He is not a mere, merely a tribal deity who's, who is temperamental or wishy-washy. He doesn't have a jurisdiction that comes only so far. He is not constrained by anyone or anything. He does not depend on anyone or anything. It's unbecoming for us to think about him as if he were limited just like us. He is not. The biblical worldview places all of reality in two distinct categories. We have God and everything else. We have the creator and the created. He is intrinsically, eternally happy in himself, contingent upon nothing, and everything else derives its existence from him. God, uh, God exists independently. Everything else exists dependently. Creation is marked by absolute neediness and dependence on God. You, you need to know this. There is nothing, not you or anything else in all of the universe, nothing in the universe exists independent of God's active and sustaining will. God didn't create us and then step back to leave us to do our own thing. He keeps the universe together moment by moment. This is, this is a major difference between us and God. We are needy all the time. We need oxygen to breathe, food to eat, water to drink, and all of these things trace their way back to a triune God. It all exists fundamentally fundamentally contingent upon his will. Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, upholds the universe by the word of his power. We came into existence by God's providence as a fertilized egg due to the combined efforts of a father and mother we did not choose, under parental judgments we did not make, in a home we did not build, in a country we did not decide on, on a planet we do not keep spinning around a sun, we do not keep burning in a universe we could never dream up. This means, by the way, this means that all the arrogance of our age about self-actualization, choosing your own destiny, you've heard this before, I trust, just choose your own destiny, this is my self-actualization, all of that, Arrogance is utter foolishness. It's all a delusion. We are not gods. We are part of a fabric of reality that is all spoken into existence by God. He is the speaker and we are his words. That's how dependent we are on his will. And praise God for that because his absolute self-existence means that his love for us is absolutely free. It's free. We could never twist his arm into being the kind of God who is ready to forgive and gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. We could never convince him to become the kind of God who is righteous and keeps covenant and steadfast love. He simply is that kind of God. Our confession does not make him into that kind of God. It's not like we give him the idea of being a little more gracious. He is maximally gracious in his very nature, and it's only because he is this kind of God that we can pray to him and confess our sins in the first place. So this prayer is marked by a sober understanding 
of a massive God. Mark number two, this prayer is marked by biblical literacy. And this is really important because we could never know God to be this way if He has not told us about Himself in His Word. This prayer is the product of a 24-day intensive Bible study, and the whole thing just oozes biblical language. These Levites are praying the very words of God back to God, and they could do so seamlessly because of how deeply God's Word had taken root in their hearts. They put so much Bible into them that when they pray, when they pray, Bible is just what comes out of their mouths. These Levites, their thinking about themselves and about God was conditioned by Scripture. They learned from the Word of God who they were. They learned from the Word of God who they were and who God was, and they responded appropriately. And this is really important for us to remember because it is so tempting in our day to get our understandings of ourselves and our understanding of God from the cultural air we breathe. Did you know that all culture, all culture is in the business of disciple making? Good cultures, bad cultures, all culture is in the business of disciple making. And secular culture conditions us to think about ourselves and our feelings and about God in all sorts of ways that run contrary to what Scripture says. Right? Contrary to what Scripture teaches. So, so we, we hear things, maybe we've even said things like this before. Stop me if you've heard this before. I have the right to this opinion about myself by virtue of it being my opinion. As if that's the trump card. It's my opinion. That means I have the right to think about myself this way. Or you may think that God is one way, but in my opinion, He is this way. But listen, we are not entitled to wrong conceptions about ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not the creator. We are creatures. And God made us to be what we are. We are what His Word tells us we are. And even more importantly, we are not entitled to wrong conceptions about God. He, has, he is who He is, and He has told us who He is, and we are to therefore submit our opinions and ways of thinking under His authoritative Word. And listen, you will not get any help with any of this from outside of His Word. You're not going to get help with any of this from the world. The Word of God cuts in the opposite direction of the world's conditioning and it reorients us back to reality. Where the world tells us that evil is good and good is evil, Scripture sets the record straight. Where the world tells us that the ceiling is the floor and the floor is the ceiling, Scripture reminds us of gravity. And this is really important. I'll just say this directly to you, Joseph, Matt, and Corey. We just ordained you. This is really important for you to know this. You are to be ministers of reality. You're to be ministers of reality, called to teach your people to align their understanding with God's Word. And this is what these Levites have done for themselves, and now they're leading the people of God to do this as well. They had such reverence for God's Word that their conception of reality 
was totally conditioned by what they read in God's Word. Glad-hearted submission to God's judgments is the flavor of this prayer. And in this confession, they are trusting God's assessment of them. They're saying, we are what your word tells us we are. We make no objections to your discipline. We have acted righteously, and you have acted wickedly. Sorry, no, the opposite of what I just said. (laughs) Just caught myself. We have acted wickedly. You have acted righteously. That was a close one. <laughs> all right, so what do we do with all of this now? Where, where, what are we supposed to do with all of this? Let me conclude with three pastoral charges. Charge number one is this. Beware of sin. Don't coddle it. Don't tell your conscience It's not that big of a deal. Confessing it openly is turning something small into something major. Don't tell yourself, I got this under control. I'll simply stop so there's no need to confess. Don't tell yourself, they don't need an apology. That's too dramatic. Don't tell yourself, okay, from this moment on, I'll be real and thorough. The next time I commit this sin, I'll go ahead and confess it. Listen, this bargaining will not do. And it betrays a view of sin that is far too naive and a view of God that is far too tame. Listen, that unconfessed sin is what lies between you and the joy of fully wrapping your arms around the gospel that you know to be true intellectually. Many of you may be experiencing seasons of spiritual drought. You may feel a complete lack of zeal for the, things that God, for the things of God that once marked your Christian life and you're in a rut. And there are a lot of reasons for winding up in a place of spiritual zeal. There's a, 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 of a spiritual rut. There's a plethora of reasons. And God may, have, God may have reasons for keeping you there despite your desire to get out. So I won't presume to just speak to every rut-constrained Christian and say, This is why you're in a spiritual rut, and this is how to get out. It's not that simple. But some are in a spiritual rut as a direct result of sin and the refusal to confess that sin. And if that's you, I can promise you this. You will never get out of that spiritual rut so long as you refuse to let go of habitual, unconfessed sin. Don't be deceived, you who try to climb out of the spiritual rut while pridefully grasping onto confessed sin, it can't be done. You can't take it out. You can't take it out with you. You can't have both. You can protect your image and refuse to confess your your sins openly if you wish. But it comes at the cost of deep and abiding intimacy and communion with God. That is what you have to sacrifice on the altar of pride in order to save face. John's confession this morning was so spot on. We, we desire not to be holy, but to appear holy. Listen, that, that's what it costs. Your, your appearance of holiness costs you actual holiness. And not only that, but listen, unconfessed sin will not behave itself or content itself with the margins of your life. We can't tame unconfessed sin, and we're fools for thinking that we can. It's like a black hole. It sucks you in entirely. 
The lie that we all too often believe is that the damage of confessing sin will be greater than simply trying to keep it under control, right? As if, as if we have any control to limit the blast radius of this sin to only heart, harm a portion of our souls. That's a lie. That's a lie. Unconfessed sin is a leech, It doesn't get smaller over time. It gets fatter and bigger and more deadly as your lifeblood is slowly drained. It's deadly and should be treated as such. Puritan pastor Ralph Venning said it well when he said, to be merciful to sin is to be cruel to yourself. To save the one alive is to put the other to death. Therefore, do not spare it, but repent unfeignedly from the bottom of your heart. Don't soften the blow of conviction that you receive when you, re- when you read God's word and feel convicted, when the law acts like a mirror to show you and reveal to you all the blemishes and stains and sins. Don't look away. Take note of what you see. Those are the things you are to confess. Charge number two, trust not in man. Mark how different this prayer of confession is from the rash and hubris promises of the Israelites all throughout their history. So often they they thought so highly of themselves and their ability to uphold their promises. So you have leaders like Moses and Joshua saying, do you understand what you're getting yourselves into? You're probably going to break this covenant. And time and time again, they're like, no, 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 we're good, we're good. We got this. We we so got this. We, We are ready to keep this promise. And time and time again, they broke their promises. Not so with the prayer of these Levites in Nehemiah chapter 9. They are sober, and their careful review of their history had rightly created a deep suspicion within themselves of themselves and their own ability to to be faithful to their promises. So remember... Be like these Levites in despair of self-confidence. When we stand with Nehemiah and look backwards on the timeline of human history, we see the very best that human history has to offer, which is failure. (laughs) Just total failure. So be like these Levites in despair of self-confidence and instead entrust yourself entirely to God who shows himself to be most gracious, which brings me to charge number three, and that is hang your hopes on Jesus. Remember our orienting question that we ask in Old Testament studies. We we always ask the question, what time is it? Meaning, where does this story that we're reading lie within the overarching story of Scripture? And when we ask that question, when we stand With Nehemiah, we ask that question. We don't only look backward to rule out the option of our ultimate hope. That's what we just did. Where is our ultimate hope? Well, we know it's not man. It's not ourselves. It's not our leaders. But we also answer that question by standing there with Nehemiah and looking forward and zeroing in on where our actual ultimate hope is. And remember, while no page in Nehemiah contains the name of Jesus, every page in Nehemiah longs for his name. I told you at the beginning of this story, of of this sermon, that the story of the Bible is contained 
in miniature in this chapter that God, most glorious and perfect, shows Himself to be glorious and He punctuates His glory chiefly by, by showing His mercy on us when we don't deserve it. We keep on messing up and He is gracious. But I ask you, is the high point of His merciful and gracious nature simply found in the forbearance of Israel's sin? Israel sins, God shows mercy on them over and over again. Is that the high point of God's gracious nature? Is that the high point of the revelation of how, God, of how gracious God is? And the answer is no. His gracious nature is ratcheted up a thousand notches. The revelation of how gracious He is is ratcheted up a thousand notches when He condescends in the person of Jesus to not only forbear the sins of His people, but to atone for them. This triune God of Scripture shows Himself to be gracious when He forgives Israel and doesn't wipe them out even when they deserve it. But He shows Himself to be supremely gracious when the Father sends the Son by the power of the Spirit to win them a status not just as those with whom God forbears, but as those who are justified and righteous. And He does this when the Son becomes man to live out the perfect obedience that Israel has proven incapable of living to die the atoning death that we deserve, to remove the guilt of our sin, the stain of our sin, and to receive the wrath and condemnation that our sin earns. He was raised from the dead to prove that His obedience on our behalf is acceptable. And He ascended to heaven where He sent His Holy Spirit to recreate us and bind us to Himself. And He now lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Praise for His people. And this means that we have every reason to pray with the kind of humility and boldness that these Levites showcased, entrusting ourselves not the slightest to our own abilities, but to God, entirely to Christ. If you have clung to Jesus by faith, it means your confession of sin is altogether different than if you had not. It means that you should not be the slightest uncertain in your mind that your confession will be received from a kind disposition. You are in Christ. The Father could no sooner turn a cold shoulder to you than He could to His ascended and resurrected Son. Christ already experienced all the rejection that you and I deserve when He clung on that cross and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All that's left for you now, Christian, is kindness. That's all that's left for you. If you want to feel the warm ray of sunshine from God's face, you can do so by entrusting yourself to Jesus. And so this means if you're not a Christian and haven't trusted Christ, are you yet ready? Are you yet? Are you yet exhausted with the uphill slog of constantly failing, illustrated so powerfully by the history of Israel? Are you ready to receive the kind disposition of the God of the universe? Listen, this disposition is directed towards Jesus and all who are in Him. So if you want to receive that kind disposition from the Father, you go to Jesus. That's where you'll get it. Now Christian, all of this is what you ought to remember 
when you take this meal of communion. We do this every week. And in this way, we have the opportunity to internalize and consume the truth of the gospel. How do I know that He's the kind of God who will receive my confession and regard my prayer? How do I know that He's the kind of God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? How do I know that He's that kind of God? And the answer is, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. How do I know that He's the kind of God who will forgive me of my sins? And the answer is, take and drink. This is my blood poured out for you. Now this means if you are not a Christian, we ask that you would not take this meal. This is because taking it would be a vain religious ritual. If you haven't, if, if, the, uh, if the substance of this meal, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, has not been embraced, it would just be vain, right? If we were to invite non-Christians to take this meal, we would be giving them assurance that all of these things are true for them right now when they, in fact, are not. This gracious and merciful God has wrapped up all of His mercy, all of His gracious disposition in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can receive this mercy in Jesus or not at all. And so we would invite you to do that. You can get in on this, okay? So we invite you to entrust yourselves over to Christ as we who worship Jesus continue to worship Him in this act of communion. And as you watch us, as you watch us, non-believer, as you watch us take this bread and this cup, know that Christ is offered to you now. He is offered to you. And any one of us who take this meal would love to tell you about our friend Jesus. I'm going to pray and then ask for the believers here to come down. You'll take from the bread and dip it in the cup. That's who we'll take communion this morning, and then return to your seat. You'll come down on my left, come back on my right. Let's pray. Gracious triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you for the apex of your grace towards us, which is Christ Jesus, the righteous. Comfort your people now. In your kindness, lead us to repentance, and may we feel the warm embrace of the assurance of your love for us. For those in this room who find themselves outside the outpour of your grace in Christ, overwhelm them and bring them to yourself. Kindly rid them of self-confidence, and may they throw their weight entirely on you in faith. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.